Smartcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, hello, friends, and welcome to episode 124 of the Burden of Command podcast. I'm your host, Earl Breon. Today's guest comes to us from our friends over at C.S. Lewis Publicists and Company, and his name is Ruben Ugarte. Ruben is founder of Practico Analytics, an organization providing expertise in data analytics. He has worked with companies on five continents and in all company stages. He's helped them use data to make higher quality decisions, boost performance, increase profitability, and make their teams world class. He maintains a popular blog, which will be in the show notes, with over 100,000 readers, and his new book is The Data Mirage, Why Companies Fail to Actually Use Their Data. Now, again, as you can probably tell by this, we're going to talk a lot about using data in your organization to help uh, drive strategic decisions, help uh, make better leadership decisions, and help drive cultures. And Ruben shares a lot of great advice with it. I can't do it justice trying to recap it here. So I'm going ahead and keep this short and sweet and get out of the way, let that stinger play, and let you get into this outstanding interview with Ruben Ugarte. Ruben, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be here, Errol. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for reference, uh, we're recording this on June 29th. And uh, Ruben, you live in Vancouver and you're a little toasty right now, right? <laughs> we are. Yeah, we are experiencing a heat dome, which I didn't know anything about. And I, I think people in this part of the world did not. Apparently, it's quite common in Vegas and Texas and so on. I guess maybe like Midwest US. But it's effectively this this you know invisible dome of hot air that then sits on top of a region an area and it gets really really hot you know and here in uh, in Vancouver it went up to as high as uh, about 115 120 Fahrenheit you know kind of feels like 115 120th mm. and today's our last day so it'll be much cooler in the the rest of the week <laughs> yeah there you go there you go. And, you know, not to necessarily start this podcast off just talking about weather, but, you know, I don't know how it is in Vancouver, but I have friends who live in, in Portland and Seattle and like something like only like 25 to 30 percent of the homes in the area actually have air conditioning. So it's been extra grueling because they haven't had any relief. How's it in Vancouver? Is it kind of the same? It's a little bit higher. You know, I think the stat that I saw a few days ago is something about 40 percent of people have AC. And it's, it, you know, it's, it's funny because I was walking through downtown Vancouver, where I live, and all the major hotels had huge lineups out the street. Uh, and they were all booked, you know, they were all sold off uh, for yesterday, today, I think Sunday, maybe even uh, Wednesday, uh, tomorrow, Wednesday. So it's been great, I guess, for hotels, you know, which have been empty, of course, like in most, most of the world. And now again, this big boom over a few days, completely sold out uh, by locals, of course. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, all right. So again, listeners, there you go. There's a little bit of, uh, you'll be looking back on this when this show airs. Be like, oh yeah, I remember what they're talking about. So a little weather history recorded there. Um, so with that out of the way, I want to get you started with the real question that I start all of my guests with. When you hear the phrase burden of command, what does that mean to you with what you do? I think to me, what instantly comes to mind is decisions, right? And leaders are, you know, some people say are paid to make decisions. I think they're 
their main role is to make the right decisions and specifically strategic ones. And that does come with power on one hand, but also comes with a burden of responsibility. And that responsibility, it's sometimes tough. You know, we saw it in the last year where companies were faced to uh, maybe choose layoffs, to furlough people, to avoid or uh, remove themselves from specific markets or products. And those aren't easy decisions. So I think that that's to me what leadership is about and what the burden of command comes with. Yeah, no, I love that. I mean, because it's true. I mean, that's that's one of the things as a leader, uh, you know, there's old saying, you don't get paid, uh, you don't get paid more for what you know, you get paid more for the responsibilities you take on. And, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about here, right? Is that responsibility to make those decisions that have, you know, in a lot of cases, depending on where you are in the organization, they have a widespread impact on uh, the, the future of that organization, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, as, as, as we see people go up in levels uh, from a manager to uh, a director to an executive and, and perhaps even higher, uh, that's, I think, the, the distinction that we can see among those who do a really good job. They embrace that burden of responsibility. They take it seriously. They study it, right? You know, decision-making is not something that is typically taught in schools, uh, just like leadership, of course, you know, uh, it's not commonly uh, taught. And they, 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 do, they do their best to make the best decisions possible within, you know, their available constraints. Yeah, no, I agree. And now, so I think it would be fair to say, you know, as, as my listeners heard in the pre-roll bio there, I talked about uh, your, uh, your, your background and your, your uh, company, Practico Analytics, and your book, The Data Mirage. So I think it's pretty fair to say that that data is kind of your your uh, area of expertise, right? <laughs> yes, that that is that is fair. I, I I've done quite a bit of work over the past six, maybe seven years on data, and uh, any anything you can imagine from strategy all the way to the actual analysis. Uh, so I, I I know a little bit about this world. <laughs> well, so I gotta you know it's it's not a. Um, it's not a world you hear a lot of people really specialize in, like like data itself. You know, like some people will specialize in, let's say, climate data or, or something like that. But, but you really kind of focus on on the, the nuts and bolts of data itself, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, I work with all kinds of industries and company sizes, and there's a lot of similarities uh, between even wildly uh, different companies and industries when it comes to data. And then how that data is taken and then used to make decisions, which is some kind of outcome or a natural uh, consequence of having data. Yeah, no, I, I and I would agree. And, you know, I think that's the thing, like the world we live in, like data, data and data collection platforms are everywhere. You, you can't do anything like, you know, I mean, uh, I'm not sure how old you are, but you know, I'm in my early to mid forties here. And I remember getting in a car and you basically had a fuel gauge and a speedometer, you know, now with the, the heads up displays that are out there, like there's all of this data being displayed in front of you 24 seven, no matter where you look. So where does somebody, uh, where does somebody start, I guess, to make sense of all the data that is around them? Sure. So, you know, we can, take a specific role here, uh, let's say uh, an executive uh, at a mid-sized company and your company has some kind of data, every company has data already, uh, no matter how small you are. Even your local coffee shop has data in the form of likely transactions and purchases. So there's data out there. The, the question that becomes, what do you do with it, right? And to me, that's less of a technical question. That is, how do we collect it? How do we store it? How do we visualize it? And more of a uh, of a strategic question, and uh, this executive would then want to think, where do I want to go with my company? You know, what 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 are we trying to do? Is it more revenue, more profit, a new market, a stronger position, a better brand, uh, a higher customer satisfaction? And then from that point, from those very specific tangible points or outcomes, they can then start to figure out. What data do we have that can help us with this specific goal, outcome? 
what data do we need to get, right? Do we need to go get some kind of external data source that tells us about competitors and the industry and the market so we understand what position we can uh, slot ourselves in? If we want to improve customer satisfaction, do we know what the current you know customer satisfaction is, right? Do we have a baseline? Do we know how happy or frustrated customers are? If not, then we need we need to go go get it, right? We need to go run surveys or interviews or focus groups, uh, and from there you kind of go through a series of sort of logical steps to get the data to use it. But then you're always coming back to this uh, initial outcome, and you know I would say too, this process uh, that we just went through for an executive, of course, would apply on a personal basis. You know, the example you gave from a car, of course, being personal data, everyone has lots of data now, even just as an individual. So you still go through a, a similar series of steps. Yeah. Well, and, and I like, you know, what, what I like is uh, in your book, right? Because I think a lot of people like to think that they do that process that you just mentioned very well, Right. But in your book, in the very first chapter, and again, this book is titled The Data Mirage, uh, your first chapter title, and I love this title, The Reality of Being Data-Driven and Why Your Company Isn't. Now, as we talked, with all this data that's available and with all these companies spending all this money collecting, generating uh, data through surveys and point-of-sale transactions, all this good stuff, why aren't companies using the data effectively? Yeah, you know, multiple reasons. Uh, I think that the first that always comes to mind and what the, the chapter tries to allude to and kind of builds upon from the introduction, uh, you know, the previous chapter to that, is that some companies have the wrong expectations. I think the world of data has been sort of completely dominated by companies like Google and Facebook, for example. When we think data-driven companies, we think Google, Facebook, and big tech and I think they're actually playing a slightly different game. You know, for a company like Google, data is the product. Everything else is really just meant to collect data. A Gmail and Google Calendar and Google Maps, right? All the stuff that's free gives them data and then they run ad, you know, ads on it. But for almost every other company, this is not the case. You know, your business might be to sell uh, furniture or it might be to sell clothes or maybe you're a professional services firm that's helping other companies or your coaching firm that's helping individuals. And in those cases where data is not the product, data is simply meant to help you support decisions. And there will be some cases where you don't even need data or there's no data available. You know, I worked with uh, tourism agencies last year during the height of the pandemic. And some of them were just completely frozen because there was no data on what was going on and what was going to happen and they were unable to move. You know, they weren't even quite sure where, what to do or where to go. And in those cases, you have to be able to move without data because you cannot just stand still. That's, that's not an option, uh, as we saw uh, now, now that we're exiting the pandemic. So I think this, this misalignment expectation then leads companies to very unusual places. You know, they, they try to really specialize in data science and artificial intelligence and machine learning when it's not providing tangible value to them as a business. It might be helpful in some way, but it's not really driving success. You know, it's not really driving higher revenue, higher profits. And then companies get frustrated uh, because they they they're spending all this money on technology, on people, and they're not really getting the return that they were expecting. And then that leads them to sort of be turned off and um, uh, maybe annoyed by data instead of just taking it in the right in the right in the right way. Right and just finding just the, the the most effective ways of using it, without thinking of of who they should be, you know, who they should be or, or what they should be trying to do. Yeah, no, I I like that, and and you know, it got me to thinking, you know, how much of this is organizations maybe not knowing the right data to collect. I'll give you an example here because. Uh, you know, I'm a big Malcolm Gladwell fan, and, and I remember one of his first TED Talks probably 12 or 15 years ago, uh, was talking about spaghetti sauce. But in there, he, he gives this great example of, uh, uh, he talks about coffee, actually. We talked about coffee shop earlier. He says, if you survey people and you ask them what type of coffee do they want, the overwhelming response is 
They want a rich, dark, hearty roast. He says, then you turn around and you give those same people a rich, dark, hearty roast. The first thing they do is they add milk and a lot of sugar to it. (laughs) So what they really want is a milky, sugary coffee drink, but they don't know they don't know that that's the answer that you're trying to ask because the way you asked the question and, and how often do you see organizations kind of run into that same thing where they think they're asking a very clear question to gather data, but the consumer on the other end is giving them an answer that maybe is not completely in alignment with what they actually want. Yeah. All the time. And you know, what I see a lot with companies is, they they may have a bias towards a specific kind of data. For example, quantitative. So they want to see charts. They want to see reports, uh, line charts, pie charts. And if the if sort of the quantitative data shows something, then we can trust it. But if it's not, we cannot. And I'll give you an example. You know, about maybe about fifteen years ago, Lego was trying to figure out how to grow the business. Their, their sales were dropping, right? The, the children uh, puzzle toys. Um, and their data, their data team, they had actually a, a sophisticated data team, sort of was telling them that children didn't want intricate uh, sets anymore. They didn't have the patience or the attention to do it. And they started to go in that direction and their sales just kept dropping. Uh, it wasn't going well. And it wasn't until... They, they decided to do surveys and interviews and they saw a kid come in. He was maybe 12 and they noticed that his shoes were just really, uh, they were really used. And they, they asked him a little bit about, about the shoes and he told them how much he loved the shoes and he was going to wear them until the shoes just completely broke apart. So they realized that this assumption that their data had always told them that lack of attention, lack of interest, um, lack of desire for intricate pieces was not correct. There was still a segment in the market that would love very intricate uh, Lego sets. And then they, of course, started making those and Lego is doing, is doing much better today. So to me, that, that was an example of over-reliance on the data, similar to the example you mentioned where you were looking at data points and maybe disregarding the human element or maybe even just disregarding common sense, right? Where... Data has to be interpreted as an art and science, and companies and executives have to make decisions based on all of it, but nothing should really be taken as as gospel, right? There's all these exceptions and compromises and things we don't completely understand. So I see that that in companies quite a lot, and it's about finding this balance between what the data says and what your experience and common sense is saying uh, on the other hand. You know, that is a good example. I, I, I hadn't heard that one. You know, I, uh, I grew up, you know, a child of the eighties. And I remember the whole, uh, the, they, they call it the soda wars when, you know, new Coke came out. It was kind of the same thing. Like they relied on the data. The data told Coca Cola. I, I believe one of the analysts was quoted as saying, new Coca Cola is the surest thing that has ever hit the market. Yet when it was released, it was a huge flop. And I think it was some of that same kind of where you're getting there is like Coke was asking the wrong question. They never stopped to ask their loyal customers, do you want Coke to change? And that's a pretty key question to ask in the beginning of, of data of data collection uh, period, right? Is is what does the customer or does the customer want what I'm trying to do, right? Yeah, and there is a paradox here that we have to acknowledge because mm-hmm. we, while well, we mentioned this examples, someone of course would say yes, but you know, whenever I look at an ad right now on you know on my phone, it knows exactly what I'm looking for, and it shows me the exact model of shoe of running shoe that I've been thinking about. So clearly, there's some data out there that's really good at determining what a consumer wants, and that's true. Yeah. So this is this is a bit of a, of a paradox and and a bit of conflicting world where in some ways the data is making targeting much easier. You know, something like Facebook ads uh, is perhaps the greatest invention ever for targeting consumers, you know, regardless of what someone might think of the collection of data, but highly specialized, highly targeted. On the other hand, it it requires some thinking, right? Um, Especially I think when you look at the strategic moves 
of what we should do, what we should build, what customers we should go after. Those are much more ambiguous and a little tricky to do. But then once once you probably have a good sense of who the customer is, what product they want, uh, what maybe uh, how to deliver it to them, the targeting and the data available to companies today makes that delivery, I think, much more effective than before. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, yeah, because I think that's, uh, you know, kind of like you said before, I think that's the big key here is these companies like Google, Google probably knows anything and everything about you, maybe even better than you do at this point. So they're able to do that effectively, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, this is not a Google example, but I remember Target got in trouble a few years ago because they they also had very sophisticated data tracking and they realized that um, they could know when someone was pregnant and they mm. they sent they would send sort of preemptive uh, marketing messages like uh, like flyers to people who were just recently pregnant, maybe three months pregnant, you know, with what you might expect, uh, sort of baby supplies and things like that. And they happened to send a flyer to a family where the daughter was pregnant and she was some, she was, she was a teenager. She must've been like 14 or 15 and their parents didn't know, but somehow target knew before the parents. <laughs> and, <laughs> and that was, that was of course an example that was sort of blown out of proportion, right. And became a, a, a sort of news hit. But that, I think that that's the sort of proof of what we're talking about here that, Targeting can be really good, really targeted through Google, through Facebook, and some of the bigger companies. Um, but some of the thinking is still needed uh, before companies can just trust those algorithms blindly. Yeah, no, I like that. So I'm going to jump to to chapter three here uh, a little bit, and I think you know maybe this this ties some of this in uh, a little bit deeper as well. But I like I like this one: how to avoid drowning in tool hell and safeguarding your data. Because, I mean, everybody's got a data collection tool now, right? I mean, you can't go on Facebook anymore without, you know, there's some quiz to tell you what kind of like Harry Potter character you are. Well, that's a data collection tool right there, right? But obviously (laughs) businesses are more complicated. I'm using that as an example that, you know, pops up on a daily basis. But tools are everywhere, I guess is the point. How do you stop from drowning in data collection tools? You know, I really like the idea. Maybe I should create this like Game of Thrones quest to determine your data personality. That's a, yeah, that I sounds like it might be a hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. But, you know, technology has made a lot of what we're talking about easier. Uh, a modern company today is going to have four or five, maybe upwards of 10 different software tools for everything. You know, CRMs for tracking customer data, email tools for sending emails and communications. Of course, now you want to track social media uh, conversations. So it's, it's, it's endless. And what can happen to a lot of companies is they get caught up in the tools. So they get caught up in the software. And a lot of my work has been helping companies with implementation and uh, tool selection. And I noticed that sometimes I was brought in just to have an extra, you know, a third party tell them what to choose. Because they they had spent weeks, months, you know, looking at, at two or three options, and they all looked so similar that they weren't quite sure what to select. And they were, you know, they were of course uh, careful about making the wrong selection, which would cost them months and thousands and thousands of dollars. Uh, so really, the the guidelines that I give in the in the book is to first not so much think about software tools because this can be a rabbit hole if you think. CRM, I mean, the CRM space might have a hundred plus options today that we can find. And that's, you know, maybe another hundred plus uh, just below the surface. So not so much thinking software tools, but thinking questions, right? So companies have one questions answer. So a question might be, how do we track our conversations with prospects? How do we make sure we stay on top of uh, follow-ups? Uh, with potential clients, and how do we how do we properly understand our uh, upcoming deals that we we, we might want to close? And then from those questions, you figure out what the right tool is. Now in that case, it's likely a CRM, but you go from questions and less tool base um, because when you think of, of uh, tools first, you think functionality. You think it can do this, it can do that. It has AI, it has machine learning, and that never stops. Um, then when, when it comes down to filter through options, 
every space might have a hundred options, like I mentioned with a CRM, but there's always a handful that dominate the space. Um, so I would look for those handful of companies that that do really well. I will also look for companies that your peers are doing well. So every industry tends to have uh, dominant players. So if you're if you're an e-commerce shop, uh, there's a, a, a stack of different tools that common e-commerce companies use, and don't reinvent the wheel. You know, don't think all my competitors are using the same tools. I'm gonna sort of you know break apart and and use something completely different. <laughs> I don't right. think I don't think I don't think technology is the place to do this. You know, you can differentiate in your business model, in your strategy, in your messaging. I don't think technology is the place to do it. Uh, you you build a technology that is standard in your industry because it's been proven, it's been used. And then from there, I think there's also um, a way to rank uh, software tools in the book, you know, to take through the the functionality that you really care about, the, the questions, give the, give them a, a, a rating, and then, and then give a score to find the best option. But that's, it's a bit of a different approach when it comes to technology that I think companies should be less, less, uh, less worry about all the possibilities in the universe and simply look for the, the handful of things that everyone else is using similar to them and then explore those. Yeah. No, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you know, sure, there's this great shiny new tool, but, you know, the, the tried and true is tried and true because it, it works. And, and uh, you know, maybe the shiny new tool proves itself and then everybody migrates to that. But don't just try to be different for the sake of being different. Uh, I, I like that. Now, the, you know, the second part there, though, is, is safeguarding your data. And as we've talked about, you know, how this data can be used, how bountiful it is out there, all the different types of platforms. Like going back to the, the Harry Potter thing, uh, you know, example, like what we've come to find out about a lot of these uh, little programs and, and uh, tools and tests and all these things that pop up on Facebook is they've really been used, most of them, to essentially skim your data to help hackers and, and that sort of thing to, you know, get basically your, your, your popular uh, password challenge question answers. You know, you think you're taking a cute little test and you're actually giving them like your mother's maiden name and all this good <laughs> stuff and you're, you're kind of giving it away. So how can with, with the value that data brings, the fact that every organization is wanting data to make decisions you know, how can you safeguard that? Because it is a really prime target uh, for for people with ill intent right now, right? Yeah, you know, and just just a few weeks ago, of course, we saw the the colonial place hack that was taking place. So I, I have to admit, this of course varies across industry. If you're a governmental institution, your level of security has to be in a completely different level than perhaps a private company uh, like the e-commerce example we were talking about earlier. Nonetheless, every company needs to look at just basic security guidelines for protecting the data. First, you know, there used to be a, a strong uh, desire to capture everything possible. If you can, if you can capture something data-wise, capture it. We're not sure if we can use it right now, but maybe in the future. I think companies should take a different approach and really just capture what they need, discard what they don't, and maybe that will lead to situations where they are stuck without data points, but uh, it's, uh, it's, it's much safer than collecting everything under the sun and then not being sure what's actually being stored. Next, there's you know standard security practices that uh, are becoming much more common, even in small companies. Uh, things like making sure everyone has their own unique access, so you're not sharing passwords you know, across Slack or email. Uh, making sure that people are using two-factor authentication whenever possible, uh, limiting access to specific groups. Uh, so maybe the sales team only needs a certain part of the data and the marketing team needs another part of the data. So keeping those limits clear. Uh, and then third, there is, a, I think, a, a constant need for external help now. And this is a specific, you know, cybersecurity uh, individuals, um, security experts and so on uh, to be able to run audits. And this is a tough world. You know, someone described this world as basically like witchcraft where, <laughs> you know, your companies are being told to buy this, you know, weird, unusual vendor thing that, that's supposed to protect them from hacks. 
but you can't really know if it does it until you are, you know until it actually happens and then you find out it doesn't uh, and it's true in the world the the, the security world uh, world is a, is a bit uh hard to judge so companies need to do their best and i think this is a bit of a preventive approach than a, a defensive one where you're collecting less data you're really trying to limit the access of data internally and being really careful with how it gets shared um, and then trying to run those external audits. You know, this sounds common sense, uh, but I've been in companies where they tell me, oh, you know what, you know, uh, we uh, all our data is in spreadsheets. You know, we sort of like share the spreadsheets around and we have no idea how many spreadsheets are out there and how many, cons- you know, contain sensitive data about the company or financials, but it's probably a few. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so there's there's uh, there's definitely room for improvement for a lot of companies in just basic security practices. Yeah, no, and and uh, you know I agree, and I like the way you put that. With you know it varies from industry to industry and from data to data, and you know uh, it, there there's a a lot of different safeguards between if your data tells you what somebody's favorite color is versus where their house is or when they're going to be on vacation. Um, yeah, no, and, and it, it it's just amazing, you know, like you said, the, those tools that are out there and, and you hope that they work, but it's it's really kind of cyclical, right? I mean, as as soon as as soon as somebody writes this great piece of software that is going to be like the perfect piece of software that's gonna protect everything and never let a virus through again. Well, somebody's out there writing a new piece of code to overcome that new piece of software and make it virtually useless. Uh, so it's, it's a, it's kind of a circular chase that we go through with this type of stuff. But, uh, so let me go ahead and jump ahead here again. Cause I like, <laughs> I like this one because doing what I do, uh, you know, going around and, and, and when I'm not podcasting, speaking on diversity and inclusion and leadership and things like that, I get to see a lot of other people's presentations and, a lot of those presentations like to uh, depict a lot of really deep data, but they do it in some of the most confusing ways possible. And chapter five is creating reports that people actually understand. And, and that's what I, that's immediately what I was drawn to with this chapter. It's like, I, I can vividly, I'm not going to say who, because they're, they're a great speaker. they got a great passion for the craft. But when you look at the slide that they throw up on the page, it's like, I have no clue what this slide is trying to say. So how can you take this data, turn it into usable uh, reports that your team can actually make decisions off of? Yeah. Uh, so there's a few guidelines whenever you, you want to create reports. Uh, of course, I think it starts with those questions. So if we if we are still following this process, you know that we were talking about earlier, by this point there is uh, questions that uh, a team or an executive is interested in, uh, whether it's the the performance of uh, sales or market performance or how we're trending towards projections. And then uh, I think simplicity is is key here, as you might expect. And I mentioned that because when it comes to dashboards, it's really easy to just sort of keep adding charts and widgets and widgets and charts and make them more complex. Uh, Instead, um, companies and teams want to think about uh, a few general ideas when thinking about how to display data. Uh, First, you know, data needs context to to be able to make sense. So showing that last quarter there was, you know, um, a thousand sales in the company is interesting, but it's much more helpful when we put it into context versus perhaps what was the previous quarter or what is the average typically in a quarter? You know, is that good? Is that bad? That's basically what we want to answer with a lot of charts. Is this good? Is this bad? Should we care or should we not? And if you have a lot of charts or KPIs that you consistently say, I don't care about this, you know, this doesn't change anything that I do, then it's just a vanity metric and you can likely skip it. The the second thing uh, as a general idea is to really dive between the uh, uh, behind the averages. So again, we may have an average sales price of a hundred dollars. Interesting. Um, we may see the, you know how it compares to a historical trend. Also interesting. But it also becomes much more helpful to know who is behind that average. 
It says specific customer groups, specific uh, locations, uh, regions uh, that are driving this average. And we start to get a better sense as to what we should do with data, which is maybe the underlying theme uh, behind all dashboards. When we look at KPR chart, what should we do with this? Uh, what should we care, right? Should we, you know, do we need to do something or are we just looking at this just for the sake of looking at it? Uh, and the the third thing I'll just mention here, just to quickly end it off. Companies should look at dashboards as <clears throat> evolving towards simplicity. That is, if you start with a dashboard of, I don't know, say 10 charts, over time, I think that dashboard should get smaller, not bigger. Because now you have, you know, you have a much more better sense of the data, better sense of what questions you care about. Uh, so those dashboards should get smaller and smaller, easier to read, uh, faster to read, faster to digest. Uh, and that should be the trend that companies should be working towards until you have this very fine-tuned, tight way of looking at data and numbers and get a gauge as to where the business is. And if you want to see an example of this, you know, think about accountants who they look at three documents and they can understand everything that's going on in the company from a financial perspective, right? Profit and loss, cash flow. Uh, sorry, those those three documents give them everything they need. I think that's the level of, of simplicity and, and conciseness uh, that every company and team should be aiming with their dashboards and reports. Yeah, no. And, and I love that because I think that is, I think that is so valuable because you know, again, as we've talked about throughout this conversation, companies are are taking in large, large volumes of data, but not not all of that data is is the marquee player. Some of it is just helping you kind of create little subcategories. You, you if I'm understanding what you're saying here, the, the the best thing is figure out what data actually is important and create reports off of that, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, with the data that we're talking about here, right, reporting data, dashboard data, um, it's really all about behavior change at the end of the day. Uh, what should a team or a person or executive do differently once they see a number? And how do you make that action? How do you make it easier uh, for someone to take the, the right decision or the action based on the, on the data? Yeah. No, I like that, and 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 I'm gonna jump ahead here again a little bit because I know we're we're coming up on about 35 ish or so minutes here. Uh, but I'm gonna jump ahead to chapter seven. Your biggest challenge actually using the data. Now, what I liked about this chapter was, you know, with my background in the military, we always talked about this thing called the 70% solution, and and we had you know all these things, you know, the the kind of the famous one that a a good plan, uh, well executed today is better than a perfect plan. Well, ex uh, a perfect plan executed a week from now, you know, so we, we got to this point, like the, the point was, and I think this is a lot of what your, your book gets to the heart of is sure. We can stop. We can take in all this extra data. We can just analyze, 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 but at some point in time, you have to say enough is enough and you have to actually start making decisions, execute and and create the product or create the the change in the organization or whatever it is. But you, it, it, the, the purpose of data collection is not data or well, maybe for some organizations that specialize in that data collection is the point. But for most organizations, data collection serves the purpose of getting to actually make the decision and put it to use, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, so really, and this might might be you know a fear, uh, a failure, a fear of of course making the wrong decision. Uh, but data data is meant to help with that and meant to help companies move along quicker. You know, think about strategy. It used to be that companies would design a strategy for five years, maybe longer. Then it became three years. Now, really, anything past two years, uh, it's um, uh, it, it's really tough to predict what might happen. So companies are are changing and moving towards having uh, a year-long strategy plan or a two-year strategy plan and then having faster ways of creating it because they, they realize that, of course, there's only so much that they can uh, predict about what might happen and they're much better off getting moving, doing their best, collecting data as to what's going on, 
and then iterate in, right? Now, now the, the word you hear a lot in a lot of companies is agile, right? How do we become agile, become quicker, do things faster, uh, not so much do them sloppily, but just move along, do our best, and then, um, you know, uh, make sure we're, we're heading in the right direction as we're moving. Yeah, I, I mean, exactly. You know, I mean, and, and the, the person who I think is probably doing that better than anybody right now is uh, Elon Musk. You know, that guy's putting out a lot of great technology that, yeah, he's got a lot of data behind it. But, I mean, let's be honest, when you look at the first Tesla uh, vehicle, it was not that great. But he got it out there, and now the Tesla three or whatever they're on, it's a pretty sharp vehicle. He, he did what you did. You're talking about there. He took the data from, from getting a product out there and he iterated, refined and made those adjustments. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong here, but sometimes that's the best piece of data you can get is, is to put the product out there and then let somebody actually have it in their hands, test drive it, run it through the, uh, run it through its paces and then tell you what they think about it. Right. Of course, right? And there's, of course, situations where this agile, you know, <laughs> move fast, break things approach uh, might completely backfire. I'm sure if Elon Musk was sending people to space um, from the very beginning, uh, they would have been a lot more careful. But even, even in that area, you know, SpaceX, it was clear that the company was moving quickly to create those, you know, reusable uh, launch rockets. Not not all of them worked, right? We we can we all saw those launches where uh, it didn't work as expected, uh, but they they were able to iterate and perhaps even do more launches than NASA sort of ever did, except maybe during that you know the height of the space uh, race uh, back in the in the sixties and the seventies. Uh, so SpaceX and uh, uh, Tesla in general, I think, have taken that approach as much as possible, while still being mindful of the of the things they are building for people. So if you're a company that doesn't sort of have that level of um, a sort of human life associated with your products, right? Imagine you're, you know, you're, you're a company that makes uh, household products or uh, manufacturing or somewhere where you have a much larger margin of error, uh, then really agile is even a better fit for, for those kind of companies. Um, and it will, uh, data will allow them to be able to make those decisions quicker and uh, more effectively. Mm, I like it. So um, kind of ramping up here again. And again, listeners, we're talking to uh, Ruben Ugarte, uh, uh, mainly about his book, The Data Mirage. Uh, but in chapter 10, you talk about beyond the basics and uh, you focus on machine learning, AI, and the future. And, and I guess that's a good question to, uh, you know, kind of start working towards uh, here is what, what do you, somebody who's has the level of experience you have, somebody who deals with data, somebody who, uh, has worked with organizations across the globe, uh, with data and decision-making as we see a lot more of machine learning and AI become more and more, uh, used by various, uh, segments of, of industry, where do you see the future of these technologies going and driving future decisions? Well, I think, you know, machine learning is already here, of course, you know, from right. um, your food delivery, right? That the route that the, the driver took was likely figured out by a machine learning algorithm, um, shipping items and so on. So it, it is already here. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting to think about how companies will, will, will sort of use machine learning and we talked about how some companies might never need it, which is true. They might just need basic data reporting. They might never really need uh, dedicated, you know, data scientists and and people to do that. But I do think every company will be touched by machine learning. You know, just today I was looking at uh, a new product uh, that uh, GitHub is releasing that allows people uh, to uh, it basically allows people to use software to write code. That is, as you write in the, as you as you write in software, the the uh, machine learning AI recommends uh, entire code blocks for you. So mm -hmm. it kind of writes the code for you. And I think we'll we'll continue to see that, and companies will 
will be impacted by machine learning without perhaps knowing that it is machine learning. So they're going to send email campaigns and the, the machine learning algorithm will figure out what's the best time to send it, who are the best people to receive it, how do you improve conversions. People are going to be running Facebook ads, right? And of course, Facebook is optimizing the, the delivery of those ads uh, using machine learning. Uh, we'll be buying things that have been recommended to us by machine learning algorithms. Uh, we'll see more machine learning in the selection of people, which will be controversial. That is, companies will use software that will help them sort through talent, you know, like job applicants. And then machine learning will um, will be used to determine uh, sort of the best potential fit or applicants for a company. So I think it's going to be everywhere. Um, and uh, But it's going to be hidden. It's going to be one of those things that we just don't think about, right? Yeah. Think about electricity, right? Like, at this point in time, we don't think about electricity in sort of you know in the Western world as something that's that's uh, that we use, right? We just plug in. It's, a, it's just it's just around us. Uh, so I think the same thing will be for for machine learning, where we don't think about it, but it is impacting our decisions on the personal side and for companies uh, in many different ways through the different vendors and software tools that any given company will be using sort of day to day. And, you know, that may be good, that may be bad. There'll be things to figure out, of course, you know, how, how to deal with biases, how to build them into algorithms. All those things, I think, will be the questions of the future when it comes to machine learning. Uh, but I think on, a, on an overall basis, it will likely be uh, a net positive for companies and society. Uh, just a sort of optimization of what are maybe seemingly boring problems but there's a lot of value in being able to optimize the right route, the right way to deliver things to customers and so on. Yeah, no, I, and I like what you said there, right, about uh, there at the end, especially there about this is going to be kind of controversial. For some people, it's going to be scary. Uh, you know, but like you said, it's here. It's been here for a while. I mean, like I like your example there about delivery because, you know, this is something UPS has been doing for decades now. Uh, FedEx as well. Um, you know, it's just everything is really just going to be that next iteration. And, uh, you know, again, doing work in a diversity and inclusion space, you know, I've, I've seen some of these programs that, that you're talking about here. And, you know, there's uh, a lot of discussion about, you know, well, okay. Uh, well, I think Google just had this come up, as a matter of fact, uh, where they, they actually showed that some of their AI had biases built into it because the coder injected their bias in it unwittingly, but they injected their bias as they're writing the code. And so, yeah, no, I love it because it is, it's, it's, you know, Ruben is completely right here. Listeners, this is coming. It's here in a lot of ways. A lot of things are changing. A lot of things are coming down the pipe. And this is again, why data uh, is so important because data is going to be pumped into everything, making a lot of decisions, uh, through AI machine learning moving forward. So, no, I like that. I think that was a, a good summary there. I, I appreciate that uh, response. Um, well, Ruben, look, we've been sitting here chatting for a little over 45 minutes here. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Thank you for being a guest and, and having this conversation with me today. No, it's a pleasure. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've loved it. And, uh, you know, I, I got to ask before I let you go here, is there... Anything that we didn't get a chance to discuss that you really want to leave listeners with? Well, I think just a, as a general conclusion to what we were talking about, you know, as an individual, as a leader, as an executive, and as a company, you, you really want to think of data in the right uh, place. So it can help you with decisions, it can support them, it can guide them, but you also don't want to be... Uh, uh, chained to it. You don't want to be stuck, you know, that that if, if you don't have data, then you're unable to make decisions. So companies need to think about the, the appropriate expectations and spending uh, of data in your company, whatever that looks like, uh, depending on sort of how, you know, high tech or, 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 or low tech you might be. And I think that will make the, uh, your relationship as a company, as an individual, much better and much more effective with it. Love that. That's great advice. Great advice. Well, so, sir, um, people, hopefully, they're bought in 
They, they want to do better with their data. They want to make better decisions. They want to make it more useful. Maybe they want to collect it in a more efficient manner. Um, and hopefully they want to go out and buy a copy of the Data Mirage. Uh, what is a good way for them to reach out to you, learn more about what it is that, uh, that you actually do, and uh, maybe have you come in and work with their organization? Yeah, so you know the book is available everywhere you can buy books: Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, Chapters. If you're in Canada, and uh, I saw it in a bunch of other places. And for more information about about me, they can go to my website uh, at rubenugarte.com, and they'll find blogs and newsletters, and I think link to the book as well. Uh, so everything will be there. Outstanding, and I'll uh, I have some links to that stuff uh, in the show notes. So, listeners, you'll be able to just click on it and go right there and and find all the information uh, you need for for reaching out to Ruben. Well, again, sir, appreciate your time. Thank you for being with me and my listeners today. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Earl. Yep, and listeners, thank you for being with us over the past uh, you know past fifty minutes ish here. Um, really appreciate everything that you all are doing. Uh, you know, speaking of data and, and making it work, you know, that's how a lot of these algorithms work with podcasting is based off of shares and clicks and, and feedback and, and a lot of the stuff that you all are doing. And, uh, you know, just keep that up. Make sure you share, subscribe, rate, review the show. Uh, definitely the share piece because it helps people like Ruben share their messages further. Um, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns for me, you know to reach out at burden.command at gmail.com. That's burden.command at gmail.com. I really appreciate you all and appreciate your time. And I look forward to speaking with you all again in the next episode. Electric acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hey there, I'm DC. I host the rock podcast, Back to the Arena, The Interviews. It's about a 30-minute podcast where I talk one-on-one with a band who has released new music. You can find us on all the best podcast sites like Spotify, Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and more. If you're a rock band like me, subscribe today to Back to the Arena, The Interview. Electric Acid.